Hello, campers. Welcome back to Girls Camp. It's me, your host, Haley Brawl. Thank you for tuning in today. We have a fun one. We have an exciting, intriguing, very fascinating topic to discuss today, and that is the folklore magic origins of the Mormon Church and of Joseph Smith and the Smith family. And this topic, the reason I got really interested in this topic is kind of funny because I was actually making a TikTok. This was when the Mormon church switched the little Moroni icons on Google Maps. They switched those pretty recently to crosses. So now apparently if on Google Maps you look up a Mormon church, it'll be signified with a little cross instead of a Moroni. And I actually heard they maybe changed it back. I haven't checked. But when that happened, a lot of people were commentating on the fact that Mormonism seems to be rebranding as mainstream Christianity or trying to lean into kind of the mainstream Christian thing. And so I made a TikTok where I was joking and I was suggesting that instead of rebranding as mainstream Christian, they should actually go back to their folklore magic roots. And it would be a much more interesting, much more appealing rebrand because there's astrology and magic. And I think it'd be much more zeitgeisty. But when I was making that TikTok, I did some quick Googling research and was stumbling across all sorts of information that I did not know about Joseph Smith, and it piqued my interest in the folklore magic stuff. And since this episode is coming out the week before Halloween, I figured it was fitting because, you know, this stuff is kind of occult, kind of mysterious. You could call it a little spooky. We're talking about spirits. We're talking about magic. We're talking about seer stones and talismans and magical handkerchiefs and canes and all sorts of, you know, kind of Halloween adjacent things. And honestly, the more research I did, the more I have come to the conclusion that Joseph Smith is pretty witchy. There's a lot of witchy magic stuff going on with Joseph Smith and with the Smith family, and it is all incredibly interesting. So I cannot wait to dive into the topic. Since I'm doing a solo episode today, I think I'm going to skip the campfire chat. I also don't have very much new things going on right now to talk about. So we're just going to dive right in to today's episode. I have some disclaimers, of course. You know, when I'm going to talk about history, I'm going to do some disclaimers. I'll try and go quick. Disclaimer number one, which I've reminded you of many a time, but I'm reminding you of again, I am not a historian. I will say I checked my sources and I do my very best to find credible, accurate information, but all of the information that I'm using for today's episode... I was not actually drawing from the primary source, but from credible secondary sources. So I'm going to cite my sources and you can check me on it if you want to. I will put the sources in the show notes. I feel like I always say this and I suck so bad at it. I'm sorry. The amount of times I've said, oh, I'll put that in the show notes and I just never do it is bad. So I promise... I promise that I'm going to put my sources in the show notes and I have a lot of references where if this feels interesting to you, I have a lot of places to send you where you can learn a lot more. I wanted to give a huge shout out off the bat to Mormon Stories. 
I drew most of my information from Mormon stories. I've been listening to a few of their podcasts. I read an essay on their site that had tons of this information that we're going to be digging into. And shout out to Mormon stories. Finding Mormon history is really difficult. I mean, history in general can be difficult to piece together. It's particularly difficult when there are biases on all sides when it comes to something like Joseph Smith and Mormonism. And so I'm so grateful for the work that Mormon Stories has done to really give what I think is a very fair view of Mormon history. This is the first time I feel like I'm doing more of a historical deep dive So I'm curious if you like it. So please let me know if this stuff interests you. I think the history element of being a post-Mormon has been kind of an interesting thing for me to navigate personally because, as I've said before, I only really looked at history through the CES letter or letter for my wife. And other than that, I was not the type of person leaving Mormonism who read Rough Stone Rolling by Richard Bushman or No Man Knows My History by Fawn Brody. I haven't read all of those things and I didn't do huge deep dives through Mormon stories or anything into Mormon history. I've actually found myself growing more and more curious about Mormon history stuff at this stage of my deconstruction for whatever reason, but I feel more interested personally in Mormon history in so much as it relates to themes that intrigue me, which is why we're talking about folklore magic stuff, because I have a hard time with timelines with history and keeping events straight and keeping people straight, all the characters. So we're not going to be really worrying about much of that. We're just going to be talking about the juicy, interesting, magical facts. So do not be deterred by a history deep dive. We're going to have a lot of fun with it. And I hope that you learned something new because I absolutely did learn a lot of new things. The thing is with history too, and I think maybe part of why I've a little bit been maybe subconsciously sidestepping getting into history too much is because as I've been preparing for this episode, as often it does, some things came up for me. And the thing that came up for me was my relationship with Joseph Smith, the prophet, Joseph Smith. And I was realizing that I don't talk a ton about Joseph Smith, and I think it's because I still have some hangups around Joseph Smith. Okay, hear me out. I talk about how the Mormon church, and a lot of people do who have left Mormonism, is kind of like a toxic ex-boyfriend. It comes with all of the things that toxic ex-relationships can come with. There's a lot of resentment and anger, but there's also this weird kind of like Stockholm syndrome-y thing where you also still feel connected to them in a big way. And if the toxic ex-boyfriend element of Mormonism were personified, to me at least, it would be in Joseph Smith. And I think that's probably a shared sentiment among post-Mormons. Maybe Brigham Young or maybe current prophets and apostles could also personify that. But I think for all of us, Joseph Smith is kind of Mormonism, right? Makes sense. A lot of our time as Mormons, we spent learning about Joseph Smith. We spent worshiping Joseph Smith. We spent singing praise to the man who communed with Jehovah And, you know, a lot of Mormonism is wrapped up in the Joseph Smith stuff. And so as I've kind of been digging into this folklore magic part of Joseph Smith, I've been like, whoa, 
Joseph Smith kind of feels like a toxic ex-boyfriend where I really don't like the guy. But at the same time, there's this connection to this person, this figure that I looked up to for a significant part of my life and that I respected, admired, revered in such a huge way. So it feels weird now to be talking about Joseph Smith flippantly or very critically. And there's also this weird thing that happens, I think, when you discover more about Joseph Smith and you contextualize who he was. Zach Hayward spoke to this in my episode with Zach. I think he spoke to this really well. But he spoke to this feeling of almost feeling endeared a little bit to Joseph Smith more when you learn more about him. And I think it's because it just humanizes him more instead of being this perfect hero prophet figure that I've been taught to believe that he is. As I learn more and more about him, even now after leaving the church, I understand him better, I feel, as a human, or I can see more just the context he was coming from which at this stage, I wouldn't say it endears me to him, but it's been interesting to further humanize Joseph Smith now that I don't believe he was a prophet. And it's just complicated that relationship with Joseph Smith because, yeah, I used to reverence him as a prophet. Then I found out all of these things about him that I very much didn't like. And now I'm continuing to find out things about him that are just shaping who he was as a person more in my mind. I will say about the Joseph Smith thing, what we're talking about today is interesting and intriguing, and I don't find it as triggering, but when it comes to the polygamy and the marrying and having sex with underage women, teenage girls, that is where it gets triggering and not interesting in the same way that what we're talking about today does. So I want to be very clear about that. I think Joseph Smith is a very scummy, scummy person who used his power to manipulate women, to manipulate everybody, but in the worst cases to manipulate women into having sex with him, into marrying him. And I think that's just flat out awful and wrong. What we're talking about today is none of that. We're just talking about kind of his spirituality, his philosophies, which, again, were rooted in magical, mystical thinking. So just want to be very clear, when my relationship with Joseph Smith feels kind of complicated, as I was saying, no, I don't like Joseph Smith, and I think he did terrible things. But again, this part of the history is interesting and has just kind of shaped and characterized him in different ways than I had imagined him before. All righty, let's jump in. I kind of feel like I'm giving a little lesson in a fun way because I have some notes. If you're watching the video, you can maybe see my iPad, but I've taken copious notes and I kind of have an outline. Usually I just wing it and I'll probably end up mostly just winging it, but kind of fun to have a little lesson and to talk through all of this with my campers. First things first, let's talk about folk magic, do some kind of general context setting around the Smith family, the time, and what folk magic is. I'm going to start out by reading a quote from the source that I pulled most heavily from, and this is an essay on mormonstories.org truth-claims. It's an essay that covers all of the folk magic stuff, the treasure digging, the magical objects, the seer stones, all of it, and there's some quotes from that essay that I pulled, and this is one of them. 
numerous foundational Mormon families actively believed in apparitions, divining rods, talismans, seer stones, planetary superstitions, lunar cycles, astrology, and enchantments. The Smith family's involvement in ritual magic is now widely acknowledged by the LDS Church. Smith family descendants eventually donated and displayed folk magic items, including amulets, talismans, parchments, daggers, and even magical canes and handkerchiefs. We will be talking about all of those things. While it is easy to acknowledge and dismiss these beliefs as non-doctrinal, they become problematic when a careful examination of Mormonism reveals that there is no extricating these folk beliefs from the visions of Joseph Smith, his translations, and much of the text of the Book of Mormon. I really love this quote because it does a good example of explaining kind of the elements of folk magic in all those lists. I also really think it's important before we dig into it, that last sentence, which is basically saying the folk magic stuff is actually really important because it was so important and so integral to Joseph Smith and the Smith family and even a lot of people that he was surrounded by at the time that it inevitably affects what Joseph Smith did in founding the Mormon Church and founding the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Those things, I think it would be very difficult to argue, are not interconnected. And the Mormon Church, although they have come out more and more in recent years in kind of acknowledging or maybe even admitting to some of these folk magic things, I think there's still a narrative. The dominant narrative is that, yes, maybe Joseph Smith dallied in some of this folk magic stuff and in some ways it even prepared him to then you know talk to god establish the lds church but really the folk magic is woven into all of it it's such a huge piece of the story and i think that's part of what has me so fascinated by it right now is because the folk magic stuff specifically is really interesting but also thinking about how all of that folk magic is woven into the Mormon things that I grew up learning, although that piece of it was completely omitted from the story. And it's just really important context for so many reasons, which again, we'll delve into more. But I think that there is a reason that the church has never provided that context. They've only provided it when they've kind of needed to, or maybe their hand has been forced to. Because I think it shifts the paradigm of the entire story of the founding of the church and of Joseph Smith. At least it has for me. That paradigm shift is oftentimes in a way where you start to see Joseph Smith a lot more as kind of a product of his time. And not only that, but a lot of the things that Joseph Smith claimed to do with translating the Book of Mormon and seeing angels and talking to God, all of those things within the context of how he viewed the world spiritually and with magic, those kinds of things take on a very different flavor and you start to see them differently. At least I did. So this is information that I think I wish I would have known. And I think there's a reason that it is not the dominant narrative because I think it would affect a lot of people's views on the doctrine and the divine nature, maybe even, of all of Mormon doctrine and the foundings of the Mormon Church and the Book of Mormon. So the first element of the folk magic stuff we're getting into is seer stones and treasure digging. I will say too, with the seer stones, whoa, seer stone, it's 
kind of a tongue twister. With the seer stone stuff and the treasure digging stuff, I was introduced to some of this at BYU. I was in a class, I think it was called Foundations of the Restoration with Dr. Anthony Sweat. If any of you BYU alum know of the class, in that class, I learned about the treasure digging, kind of, the seer stones, kind of, and it was all kind of packaged in a very specific way. I remember feeling kind of surprised that I hadn't heard of any of the stuff. I was a return missionary at that point, but I didn't feel super alarmed by it. And I think a lot of it was because of the setting. I was sitting in a class at BYU. I was amongst probably 100 students. I was sitting by my husband and we all just were kind of like, oh, okay, interesting. You know, Joseph Smith was known as a treasure digger and Joseph Smith actually translated the Book of Mormon by looking at a stone in a hat. I didn't even know that. I didn't even know that Joseph Smith had a stone in a hat to translate the Book of Mormon with the golden plates actually covered. So that was when I learned about all of this stuff. But I was very much drinking the Kool-Aid at that point. I was fresh off my mission. And again, I was just surrounded by people who believed it. And it was being packaged to me in a very specific way, which I think is very interesting to think about, to think about how this information, when it is shared, it's shared, I think, strategically at certain times of people's Mormon journeys and how that information can feel different based on, yeah, when it's given to you and how. Anyway, that is when I first heard about this stuff. So there was a treasure craze in rural New England at the time that Joseph Smith and his family were living there. I also want to point out here, too, that the land that they were living on in New England was previously occupied. It was stolen from indigenous people. So a lot of the treasure craze was thinking that the indigenous people had maybe buried treasures and these white settlers were going to go in and try and find and mine like burial sites and stuff or sites of religious importance to the indigenous peoples that they had stolen the land from. So already very colonial, very problematic, and I think very worth noting. But at this time, the Smiths were in a lot of financial trouble. So Joseph Smith's dad, Joseph Smith Sr., He had a lot of debt, he had some failed business ventures, and he was looking to make a quick buck because his farming endeavor had not been successful in paying back debts and in making money. He decided to jump in on the kind of get-rich-quick scheme that was treasure digging. And there were other people at the time who were also in on this treasure digging thing. They thought that they were going to go dig for treasure and get rich, kind of similar to the gold rush in California. There was not a lot of evidence that people were finding a bunch of treasure and getting rich, but it seemed like something that people could do who were in financial straits. And the Smith family was one of those families, Joseph Smith Sr. specifically. He decided he was going to go dig for treasure and bring the family or the boys, Joseph Smith included, along with him. Joseph Smith, for whatever reason, was decided upon as the person who would be the seer or the one who would help them find out where they should actually go to dig. So they weren't just like, you know, walking to some random plot of land and digging. They would actually consult a seer stone in order to find out where they should go and dig for treasure. And Joseph Smith Jr., the prophet one, (laughs) Joseph Smith was the one who was doing the seer stoning 
which is actually called scrying. So there's a fun new random trivia vocabulary word for you. It's called scrying when you consult like a seer stone or look into like a crystal ball or a magical mirror and are seeking out information. Apparently that's called scrying. And Joseph Smith was the designated person to do the scrying to tell the treasure digging crew where they should go and search for treasure. Part of the ideology around treasure digging was that the treasure was being guarded by spirits. Spirits of all sorts, spirits, angels. There are even some accounts where treasure was apparently guarded by animals like toads and salamanders. But the thinking was that the treasure was guarded by spirits and there was actually certain magic rituals you could do in order to appease the spirits and then hopefully get the treasure because if you didn't appease the spirits then they had a tricky tricky way but a convenient way if you didn't find the treasure a convenient uh, excuse I guess for not finding the treasure where if you didn't appease the guardians correctly even if you were in the right spot for searching for treasure they would like sink it deeper into the earth so that you couldn't get it so most treasure seekers, including the Smith family, again, would do these ritual magic things in order to hopefully get past the spirit guardians. Apparently, Joseph Smith Sr., the dad, had this dagger that was inscribed with astrological symbols, and they would use that dagger before they went to dig the hole. They would put a circle around the site that they were going to dig into with the dagger, like in the dirt, And apparently that would protect the diggers. So they would do things like that. Magic rituals in order to be worthy or to whatever, get around the spirits to get the treasure. So basically what was happening is that Joseph Smith Jr. would look at the seer stone. He would say, let's go to this spot. This is where the treasure is. They would go do all the rituals. They would dig for it. And then when it wasn't there, it wasn't like, oh, Joseph Smith, you were wrong. You're probably not seeing anything through the seer stone. It was, oh, we must have done something wrong. And that's why the spirits sunk the treasure deeper and we weren't able to actually get the treasure. So it wasn't the fault of the seer, in this case, Joseph Smith. It was the fault of fate or these magic practices that they weren't worthy of getting it or they couldn't find it because they didn't do all the ritualistic things first. So a little tricky, a little bit of a lack of mm, not accountability. What's the word? Basically just those loopholes that we tend to see, right? Where There's no way to say, oh, wait, this actually isn't working because there's always another spiritual reason or magical reason that you can attach to why it didn't work instead of just saying, oh, maybe the magic itself is not working. It's like there's a magical excuse for why the magic didn't work, which then validates the magic in the first place instead of, again, just being like, hmm, seems like every time Joseph Smith sends us to this plot and we dig, we don't get the treasure. So maybe it's not working at all. Instead of that, it was, well, the spirits, the toads and salamanders and spirit guardians must have sunk the treasure deeper. And therefore, that's why we didn't get the treasure. So what's the issue with the seer stones and the treasure digging? Or is there an issue? And maybe there isn't an issue for some of you or for people who know this and are in the Mormon church. I will share what I think some of the 
implications, I guess is a better word than issues, are of this treasure digging background for Joseph Smith. And there are a couple that I think come into play. So the first one is that this whole treasure digging thing affected the doctrine that ultimately came out of the Mormon church through the Book of Mormon and like DNC and stuff. And it also affected or affects the understanding of the origin story of the church itself. So for example, in the Book of Mormon, there's the story of the Jaredites, where there are special stones that God touches and it lights up their boats. Or there's a story, I didn't look up exactly where this one was, but it's in Nephi somewhere where there's treasure that's like hidden deep in the earth, but the people who go to dig out the treasure are not worthy, they're not pleasing God. And so the treasure becomes slippery is the word that's used in the Book of Mormon. So there's these kind of similar tales of stones and of treasure that show up in the Book of Mormon itself. And then, of course, when you're thinking about treasure digging, it's difficult to not compare the story of Joseph Smith himself going to find the gold plates, which were buried in the earth, made out of a precious metal, gold, that he had been told were in a certain place because of an angel, a spirit, and which he sought out and tried to get out of the earth multiple times, but was only able to retrieve when he was worthy of it. So once you understand the whole treasure digging kind of narrative, and then you look at the story of Joseph Smith getting the golden plates, which he ultimately translated to be the Book of Mormon, they seem pretty similar, right? (laughs) They seem quite similar. And so it kind of causes one or causes me, myself and I, to think, hmm, that narrative now of Joseph Smith seeking out gold plates in the earth with the angel, the whole shebang, just makes more sense. It feels less miraculous and unique and divine and feels more like par for course for what Joseph Smith was doing at the time, but just with kind of a different twist, if that makes sense. The other reason that this has implications is because Joseph Smith was actually arrested for this treasure digging stuff he was doing. So let's talk about that. Joseph Smith was arrested under the count or the charge of disturbing the peace. And this was a charge that apparently at the time was commonly used for like scam artists and con men and like tricksters and stuff. And the reason that he was brought to court is because there was a family called the Stowell family. And they actually hired Joseph Smith to find treasure. And Joseph Smith was saying, I'm the seer. I have the seer stone. I can consult the seer stone and tell you where to go and you'll get treasure and become rich. So he was kind of selling that to people. This family said, okay, we will pay you in order to work your magic. And then, you know, you'll lead us to treasure or whatever. So they paid Joseph Smith. They weren't finding treasure. I think they kept paying him multiple times or he kept asking for money, but they weren't getting any of the treasure in return. So they decided to bring him to court. Basically, he went to court, admitted that this is what he did, that he was a treasure seeker. And he was ultimately found guilty for basically scamming this family out of money on the promise that he would be able to get them treasure but he wasn't able to. And this really feels 
This really reminds me of MLM stuff. And I've been thinking, was Joseph Smith not the first MLM kind of scam guy? Because he was essentially saying, give me a little of your money and I will lead you to a treasure trove of more money. But really, he was just taking money and there was no actual treasure trove of money, which is kind of how MLMs operate. And this has come up so frequently in a lot of the episodes about how there's just a lot of Mormon MLM connections. Maybe I've been primed to see it, but when I was reading about this court case, I couldn't help but think, this feels pretty MLM-y. It's kind of a scam. And, you know, it's difficult to say when you're reading historical documents the kind of argument or the debate that arises between Mormons who know this history and talk about this history and maybe people less empathetic to the Mormon cause or the plight of Joseph Smith. The debate essentially is, was Joseph Smith earnest in his belief that he could point out where treasure was? Did he really think that he could do that? And in good faith, he was offering his services to people? Or was he scamming people? Did he know that he couldn't do it? And he was saying, come on over, I'll help you find treasure, but you got to pay me first, knowing full well that he actually did not have that ability. So up to you to decide. But either way, he was charged and found guilty for essentially scamming the Stowell family. So I guess the implication of some of this treasure digging seer stone stuff is that it was illegal. He was actually charged in court for illegal activity. And I believe it was illegal, if I'm remembering right, I believe it was illegal even to solicit the services that he was soliciting. So even if he had found treasure, (laughs) it wasn't legal to say, pay me to help you find treasure. Like, I think that itself was illegal. So he was participating in illegal activity, if that matters to you. I don't know, but that is an implication of what he was doing is that under the law as it was, he should not have been doing that. Another interesting thing to note here with the treasure-seeking stuff is that there's a narrative, of course, about Joseph Smith that he was a very persecuted religious leader. And I grew up believing that Joseph Smith was persecuted because he was called of God and because people didn't want to see the truth that he was bringing to the earth. And so he was persecuted for talking about the first vision. People didn't believe him. When a lot of the persecution, Exhibit A, is this court case we just talked about, a lot of the persecution that Joseph Smith faced was actually around this treasure digging stuff. He was called a treasure digger. He was brought to court for it. People felt scammed by him. And so a lot of the persecution that he faced that I think the church kind of spun to be about, oh, he was a martyr to this cause of bringing the truth to the earth was actually about the treasure digging stuff, which would have been important context. Okay, now we're going to dive into some more magical, mystical elements of the Smith family and things that they did and believed. I think these things are maybe a little bit a little bit less connected to some of the doctrinal stuff, but they are super interesting and I had never heard of almost the rest of the things that I'm going to tell you. I think the seer stone thing and the treasure digging thing is difficult for the church to not at some point kind of have taught people. I mean, again, I only learned it going to BYU, but the church has a little bit more started to talk about that stuff. I say that, but not really. Oh, 
there is something I wanted to talk about around that, actually. I just responded to this video I came across on TikTok. And there's a podcast, I think it's called Faith in Focus, that is a Mormon podcast. Anyway, there was this clip where the guy was interviewing another guy, and the other guy was saying, I don't understand why people say their shelf broke. To me, it's just maturing. And he was essentially saying that we should expect as Mormons to find out more information as we get older, and it might be information that could potentially complicate the narrative that the church teaches us, but that the church teaches a, quote, Disney version that is taught to kids because that's all they can understand, and that as, again, we grow older, we should expect to grow out of the Disney version as we discover things about Mormon history that were never taught to us. You can go watch my video in response to him on Instagram or on TikTok because there's a lot to be said there. But the reason I wanted to bring this up is because the Disney version way of describing the dominant narrative of the church I actually think works really well. I think what doesn't work about what that guy is saying is that the Disney version is essentially the version that the church teaches. And I've been thinking about that whole Disney version thing a lot because as I've been doing this historic research, I've been realizing yeah, the church really does teach a Disney version, not just to kids, to all of us, to full-grown adults. I would imagine a lot of full, active adult Mormons don't know a lot of this stuff. That's based off of me being an active adult Mormon return missionary who didn't know this stuff and then only learning some of it as a student at BYU. But Anyway, I don't know, you know, what everyone knows or doesn't know, but I do think the narrative, the thing that's taught in church, the thing that's easily accessible in church manuals and in general conference and in all the ways that the church teaches about what it is and who it is and who the prophets are and who Joseph Smith is, that's the Disney version. It's a very curated story of Joseph Smith, the Smith family, the origins of the gospel, Brigham Young, the whole kit and caboodle. And so in a way, I'm kind of grateful to that guy for helping me form this concept around a Disney version of the church. And ironically, I think it was kind of almost him inadvertently admitting that there has to be a Disney version because the version that is true, the complicated version that fits within context a lot of people just aren't going to see the same way and probably won't believe or won't believe in the divinity of it the same way. And obviously, he was also not acknowledging that in order to find out the not Disney version, you have to do a lot of digging, mostly in what the church has deemed anti-Mormon places. So anyway, again, you can go watch my video. You can go watch the video that the guy did. It's kind of crazy. He tells us all to chill out and grow up, essentially, when it comes to the fact that we learned new information and then reevaluated what we believed and found that maybe we didn't believe what we were taught because we were taught something that, A, wasn't the whole thing, and that when we found further information about, we decided, oh, well, that wasn't really what I was taught to believe it was, so I don't believe it anymore. Sorry, I made that a whole tangent. I was trying to just touch on it, but the Disney version thing I think is really applicable when we're talking about this stuff. Let's get back to the magical objects thing. First thing, the Smiths had, so Joseph Smith and his family, had mystical parchments. 
these are parchments that would channel mystical, magical energies, apparently. And on these parchments were things, symbols that they have now traced back to like occult handbooks. So these parchments were found that had, you know, these symbols written on them that were used for these magical purposes. And on one of the parchments, interestingly enough, it actually was titled Holiness to the Lord, which is what is inscribed to this very day on Mormon temples. So there was magical parchments that the Smith family used and believed in. Okay, there were also handkerchiefs, and handkerchiefs, for whatever reason, were apparently used for healing, and the handkerchief thing actually has its origins in the Bible. Um, in Acts 19.12, if you want to look it up specifically, um, the Apostle Paul actually sent handkerchiefs among the people to heal them. And then there's a story about Joseph Smith in 1839. Someone had a sick child and Joseph Smith gave them a handkerchief, which he said would alleviate the sickness and heal the child. There are a lot of other recorded instances in early Mormon history where handkerchiefs were used or believed to be have powers for healing. We've got the healing handkerchiefs and we've got the magical parchment. I really like the parchment one. The parchment one feels very Harry Potter coded. <laughs> like, uh, what am I thinking of? The Marauder, Marauder's Map? Oh, how do you pronounce that word? Marauder's Map? That's always how I've said it in my head, but I know that's so wrong. Let me look it up. Marauder's, Marauder's Map pronunciation. Okay, here we go. These pronunciation videos. looking at how to <gasps> this word. Both in British English and in American English, as the pronunciations differ. In British English, this is normally pronounced as marauders. You do want to stress on the second syllable. Okay, marauders. Also, God bless the people who take their time and energy to make pronunciation videos on YouTube. The amount of times I look those up, and for every word there is one. Thank you to that person. Anyway, in Harry Potter, there's the Marauder's Map that Fred and George use, the I solemnly swear I'm up to no good, and then you can like see where people are at Hogwarts. The magical parchments are kind of giving that energy, which I think is pretty fun. The handkerchiefs, a little less exciting. So if we're rating the magical objects so far, I'd prefer the parchment. Okay, next magical object. Joseph Smith's cane was thought to have special magical powers. The cane had astrological symbols that were carved into it and a serpent head. And then when Joseph and Hiram, Hiram Smith, Joseph Smith's brother, died, their caskets, there was wood that was cut from their caskets and was then made into canes. And these canes were distributed among like church leaders. And Heber Kimball, who was the prophet... I don't know how far after Joseph Smith, but he was prophet in like the 1850s. Heber C. Kimball spoke in the Salt Lake Tabernacle in 1857, and he spoke about the powers that these coffin canes had. So there were coffin canes that had powers, and Joseph Smith himself, before the whole coffin thing, had a cane that he thought had magical powers. And then Heber Kimball, so the one I just referenced, the other prophet, he also has 
recorded where he said he would consult his rod or his cane and he would consult it and kind of inquire of it and learn certain spiritual things through his cane. So the quote specifically from Heber's journal on June 6th, my birthday, Heber was writing on my birthday in 1844 about his magical cane. Fun. He said, I inquired by the rod. It was said my family was well, that my wife would come to me in the East. So he was using it to kind of, you know, I don't know, speak to God, find revelations through a cane. So that one's kind of fun. Um, I think I still like the parchment best. Right now I would say parchment, canes, handkerchiefs. Oh, and we also got to talk about the dagger because the dagger was the dagger with the astrology symbols that they use to protect the gold diggers. That one's pretty cool. I think that would probably be number one. Dagger, parchment, and then the cane and handkerchief stuff. Okay, the other really interesting magical object, which leads us into the next facet of the folklore magic, which is astrology, there was a talisman that Joseph Smith had that apparently he had on his body when he actually died in Carthage jail when he was murdered. He had this talisman that was a silver coin. It had astrological symbols on it. And I guess these symbols like connected to Jupiter because Joseph Smith was really into the astrological powers of Jupiter specifically. And he thought that this talisman, which he kept with him all the time, he thought that that protected him in some way, shape or form. So that one's kind of interesting too. An astrological Jupiter talisman, kind of interesting. So speaking of the astrology stuff, Joseph Smith really liked Jupiter and its astrological powers. I should have done some research onto why Jupiter and what the astrological powers were and maybe still are because I don't know, but he liked Jupiter. He actually married Emma, his wife, his first wife, the primary wife. He married her on a date that aligns with Jupiter's astrological power in some way. And something interesting with the astrology bit is that the night that he went to get the golden plates was the night of the autumnal equinox. So there was a lot of power in the date of the autumnal equinox, which I believe is September 22nd. So a lot of the dates of, you know, going to get the plates, and I think there are a few others, actually line up with important astrological dates, which is really interesting. So that's another way that the astrology kind of comes into play in some of these, you know, Mormon canon origin events. I find the astrology thing really interesting and it kind of caused me pause. I don't know. It kind of caused me to reflect because astrology is something that I've been interested in I think with a very healthy dose of skepticism, but it's something that I have found more interest in since leaving the church. And I think I was interested in it in some ways in the church too. But I think it's interesting because I think the church very much is not fully against astrology, but I always remember growing up thinking like horoscopes were bad and wrong and that astrology was just obviously so woo-woo and so crazy and had no scientific backing. So to find out that Joseph Smith himself was an astrology girly is an interesting turn of events. It's an interesting twist on the whole Joseph Smith thing. And it was funny to learn about Joseph Smith being an astrology guy because I was like, 
I think I kind of like astrology too, or I'm interested in astrology. I think maybe there's something to it. I don't really know. I haven't thought about it all that much. But yeah, I don't know. I was like, it's interesting to think about astrology as this kind of ideology within this context that we're talking about. And I think it just speaks to these really interesting overlaps of spiritual modalities and mediums and where they run into religion and religious frameworks and how religious frameworks now seem to steer clear of these more folklore magic things, even though, in the case of Mormonism at least, they were very uh, baked into the actual religions. So it's interesting how now those things seem like competing against each other or very at odds with each other, when in reality, they were part and parcel of the whole thing when it all started with Joseph Smith. Last couple of interesting facts I want to share. These go kind of along the lines of astrology. It's about planets, but there are a couple quotes that I think I had heard of. They kind of rung a bell for me, but I had never really sat with Not that they're, I mean, they're kind of crazy. Okay, so Joseph Smith was said to have described the inhabitants of the moon. I don't know if you've heard this one. And it was recorded in the journal of a guy named Oliver B. Huntington. Don't know who that is, but it was later apparently put into official LDS publications. And this is his quote. Inhabitants of the moon are more of a uniform size than the inhabitants of the earth, being about six feet in height. They dress very much like the Quaker style and are quite general in style or the one fashion of dress. They live to be very old, generally near a thousand years. So that is Joseph Smith's concept of aliens that live on the moon, dressed in Quaker style and all six feet tall. Who the hell knows why that would be his understanding or his vision of people that live on the moon, but quite interesting. And later when we landed on the moon, I don't think these Quaker six feet aliens were there to greet us. So that one must be one of those revelations that wasn't a revelation. I don't know. Brigham Young later, when he was in the tabernacle in Salt Lake City, said that there were people who lived on the sun. He said, and I quote, who can tell us of the inhabitants of this little planet that shines of an evening called the moon? When you inquire about the inhabitants of that sphere, you find that the most learned are as ignorant in regard to them as the ignorant ignorance of their fellows. So it is in regard to the inhabitants of the sun. Do you think it is inhabited? I rather think it is. Do you think there's any life there? No question of it. It was not made in vain. So according to uh, Brigham Young, people would have lived on the sun, which I think has also been debunked. So again, I don't know if you'd call this one revelation, but he was wrong on this one for sure. We ended up kind of delving more into the realm of science fiction there at the end with those alien revelations. But other than that, I hope you had kind of a spooky, interesting time learning about the magical, mystic elements of the founding of Mormonism, of Joseph Smith and his family, and even Brigham Young and Heber Kimball. I have had a great time, a really reflective time learning about all of this and yeah, I don't know. It never ceases to amaze me how much there is to learn about Mormonism and how rich the history of Mormonism really is when you're not just being told the Disney version of events, how differently I view Joseph Smith and how differently I view 
all of the things I was taught as a kid, it's kind of a trip. It's a trip to be taught certain things. And then at this stage of my life and at this stage of leaving Mormonism, just re kind of contextualizing all of it. It's a weird thing. Like I said, I had known some of this, but not all of this. And it's just interesting. So make of it what you will. I want to read one more quote from that essay that I quoted at the beginning. This is the conclusion of the essay, and I really liked how it summed it up. While some scholars may reduce Smith's treasure digging and seer stone usage as innocent preparation for a higher calling, many are unsatisfied by this reductionist explanation and point to numerous other historical facts that support a magical view that lies at the heart of Joseph Smith's religious innovations. The most critical of scholars find Smith's use of folk magic and treasure digging to be evidence of charlatanism that continued with the fabrication of the gold plates and the Book of Mormon. So, you know, like I said, make of it what you will. I just think that information is important. I think that everyone deserves to know the information and the context of the things that they are being told to believe in. And I do take issue with the fact that not all the information feels readily available and a lot of it feels demonized and hidden. And I think that as grown adults, there was something Amber said when we were talking about the CES letter. And I can't remember exactly how she said it, but I really liked how she framed it, where she said, basically, we're adults, we should be able to have the information and be able to come to our own conclusions. And I responded and said, absolutely. And I think that the reason the church doesn't allow us or, you know, have ready access to all of this information is because they probably wouldn't like the conclusions that a lot of people come to. And, you know, you can always go back to that quote from... Oh, is it Richard Bushman? I'm sorry. I think about this quote all the time, so I should know who it comes from. Zach quoted it in his episode. But basically, it's, if this is true, then it should stand up to questioning. The truth should be able to be questioned rigorously. That is kind of the standard that truth should be held to in order to know if it's the truth. So I think that the information should be known. I think it's really interesting, fascinating information. I think it's a little spooky. I think it's a little Halloweeny and Halloweeny. <laughs> I think it's a little Halloween esque. So with that, I will say happy Halloween. Joseph Smith might be a witch. He seems a little witchy with his parchments and his canes and his seer stones. And on that note, I wish you a happy spooky season and a happy Halloween. And I can't wait to see you next week at Girls Camp. Have a wonderful week in the meantime. Bye. Cheese.